The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, September the 23rd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today are political editor Pat Leahy and political reporter Jennifer Bray, who is back and, if not tanned, at least relaxed from our holidays. Is that right, Jo? Yeah, I'm I'm very relaxed. I never get a tan because I'm a redhead. But um, yeah, it was nice to get a couple of days off. Uh, I think the Zen feeling lasted for around two hours, but at least, you know, at least it lasted two hours. <laughs> Well, welcome back to the bleakness of Irish politics in the year 2020. Um, I suppose we'll start with the fact, because in a way it illustrates where we're at, that a substantial amount of the cabinet is currently self-isolating, or at least um, refraining from full contact with with other people. Yeah, so this morning we learned that Leo Varadkar um, was informed that he was a close contact of someone who tested positive for COVID-19. And he will have to restrict his movements, which basically means work from home and exercise outdoors only. Um, in terms of what you can what you can do out and about, so he said he's feeling perfectly well, um, and that he'll be continuing to do his job. But obviously, it will be uh, in a much more restricted fashion. Um, we learned last night it was a similar case for Pascal Donoghue, and obviously, we are well aware, of course, of of what happened last week with Stephen Donnelly, and I believe Pat, you were saying perhaps Simon Coveney as well is in the in the same boat. Yeah, that's right. Simon Coveney was in Brussels for meetings, including one with uh, Michel Barnier, but there was Foreign Affairs Council meeting and uh, General Affairs Council meeting that he was in Brussels for. So I think the normal procedure is that he's tested before he goes. He's tested on return and he'd be tested um, after a week as well. Now, it's not showing symptoms or anything like that, but this is the routine. Now, he's free to work in his department and free to be in Leinster House, but he is restricting, I'm told, his movements in in terms of social interactions with people. So, yeah, it amounts to, what, a quarter of the cabinet that is currently restricting their movements. Three of them, I suppose, as a result of international travel and EU meetings. It was, I think it was the French finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, who tested positive, which is, and Pascal Dunne, who met him at the um, at the Eurogroup meeting in Berlin last week. So that's why he's, uh, that's why he's self-isolating. And I think as EU business gets up and running again, uh, in terms of face-to-face meetings, uh, we will probably see more of this. Although the European summit, the meeting of the heads of government that was supposed to take place uh, in Brussels this Thursday and Friday has been postponed uh, for a week. So I think what you're seeing, I suppose, is normal government and EU business trying to get up and running, but facing you know the sort of difficulties that are likely to be with us for some time to come. Well, indeed. And in fact, these are just fairly common sense precautionary measures, which are all pretty clear. They're in, they're in place now, Jen, aren't they? And, you know, to be honest, I'm not sure how much that kind of a restriction actually restricts the ability of, of those particular politicians 
um, to do their jobs. And I would also hazard a guess, and it's no more than a guess, that the circumstances in which, for example, that that meeting in in Europe took place last week were probably, you know, people were observing the you know the protocols for such meetings in terms of social distancing and the the, the other things which are required. So the odds are that there isn't a significant problem there. And this is just the world we're in now. Yeah, you're right. This is the world we're in now. I think even this morning when it emerged, when Leo Varker sent out a statement that he um, had been in close contact with someone who tested positive, there wasn't even any surprise or, you know, because I think if you remember back in March and back in April, when we had Irish political leaders and political leaders around the world who were in this exact circumstance, or perhaps testing positive, it was kind of a feeling of shock and, you know, what's going to happen and what's the backup plan and what's the plan B. And now it's kind of I hate this phrase, but, you know, the new normal, it's the it's the new reality, I suppose. And, and, and it's something you're going to have to get used to um, for a long while, at least. And I would agree with you to a certain extent in that I, I think that they, they obviously can carry on with their business if they haven't tested positive. And even a lot of people, as we all know very well by now, who test positive might not have any symptoms. So what I'm saying is that y- you can still carry out your business as a government. You can still do your job as a minister, for example, but... The one area that I think would suffer, and it's kind of natural that this would happen and it's not their fault, is in the area of transparency. Because if you have a minister, let's say Leo Varadkar was due to come out tomorrow, let's say this was around the time of the budget, um, to explain budgetary measures, uh, give a press conference, answer questions from journalists, um, that obviously wouldn't happen. So, you know, it would be done probably through press releases, through what whatever form that remote working will allow. Um, it just means it dampens down the... Um, availability of um, any political leader or any TD and therefore our opportunity to question them and maybe to get to the bottom of of whatever issue is the issue of the day. That's not ideal, but it is the way it is. And I don't think, barring some kind of Zoom press conference or something, I don't think there really is very much that can be done about it as far as I can see. Yeah, I, I mean, I do wonder, why can't there be Zoom press conferences? I mean, is this a convenient screen perhaps for some politicians? It's perfectly possible to have a press conference with all the journalists who would be there in person participating yeah. in the same way. I've actually wondered this myself because we had an issue kind of going back a couple of weeks. You know, usually when there's a cabinet meeting afterwards, there's a kind of post-cabinet briefing which will be done with political correspondence to tell them what it, what was on the agenda and to explain decisions that were made at Cabinet, which is obviously very important. Um, and that sort of fell by the wayside for a couple of months. Now, in fairness, there was a new government being set up, new press officers being appointed, advisors, um, government press secretaries, all that kind of stuff. They were only being put in place. So there was kind of an in-between period, but we're still kind of only getting back into the groove of that now. And you, you could definitely see a scenario whereby if cases continue to increase and we're all told to stay at home again, if the levels increase from, from three to four to five, that that could again fall by the waist. And I think that this idea of Zoom meetings and like we do for the podcast and and whatever other mechanism uh, that you can have available through technology should definitely be explored instead of just going back to the way it was before, which is everything's off the table and, you know, we go back to hitting the phone lines and harassing people uh, over the phones 24-7, 9am till 10pm. <laughs> There's no reason why socially distanced press conferences can't take place. The post-cabinet briefing did so yesterday. Um, I know because I was at it. 
Um, it was completely spaced out in the press centre and government buildings and the government press secretary and two assistant government press secretaries or deputy government press secretaries as they are, uh, sat, uh, sat at the top of the room. If ministers aren't doing press conferences, it's not because they can't, uh, they can't do them either in a socially distanced way or uh, on Zoom. It's because they don't want to face questions from the press. We see the opposition are out multiple times a day on the plinth to meet journalists again in a socially distanced fashion to get their message across. So to be honest, I don't think the pandemic is, uh, is, is an excuse for ministers not talking to the public and explaining what they're doing to the public. I also believe actually that in most cases it's in their interest to talk to the public because um, that's their, you know, talking to the public through us is their means of getting their message out. If they don't do that, they may be sure that the vacuum will be filled by, you know, either hostile media commentary or by the opposition. So, um, you know, there's no reason at all that it shouldn't be done. Having said all that, Pat, this is a time of year where traditionally there's a lot of furtive goings on uh, under the hood when it comes to government because it's when the, the real tough talk starts in terms of the negotiations between different departments and different ministers in the run-up to the budget. Uh, there was quite a lot of coverage yesterday about discussion about whether supports such as the um, the pandemic unemployment payment and enhanced sick pay for people who don't have company sick pay it needed to be ramped up. And you, in a piece in the newspaper this morning, frame those in terms of that kind of jostling for position in the pre-budget uh, period. Yeah, it's actually started a little bit later than uh, you would normally expect. So the budget is on the 13th of October um, so we're now three weeks away. It was three weeks away yesterday from uh, from that budget. And by now you would expect to be, you know, in the sort of heavy lifting of, uh, of budget negotiations between the Department of Public Expenditure at the centre of government and the individual line departments or the spending departments as they haggle over their settlements for uh, for next year. And my understanding after a few conversations with people yesterday and this morning is that that process uh, is only really getting going uh, at this stage. So departments have put their bids in for a settlement for uh, for their spending ceiling for next year beginning the process of horse trading between themselves and uh, and the centre. And that will go on for uh, for a period of a couple of weeks before um, those numbers are finally tied down in the week before the budget. So it's all a little bit truncated this uh, this year, perhaps not unexpected given the circumstances of the pandemic and uh, and so forth. Two other things I think to add on the, the, the budget process. The, the first is that coalition governments often find their first budget quite difficult. Um, if you look back to uh, the experience of recent coalition governments, particularly new coalition governments, then the, the whole experience of the horse trading, the dealing, the behind closed doors negotiations, the use of the media to fly kites to push particular agendas, all that tends to be a little more fractious, in my experience of covering these things, uh, in, in, in the first year of a new government. After that, people kind of know what to expect and it settles down. So I think we will see some of that in operation over the coming weeks. The only thing to, to, to add 
in, in, in qualification to that, I think, is that the usual financial constraints are very different this year. So the government is going to borrow an absolute truckload of money next year to, uh, is borrowing this year and will borrow again next year to, uh, to pay for the costs of the pandemic and the economic slowdown that, uh, that has accompanied it. So it's not that government has all the money to do everything that it wants this year. No government ever has, ever has that. But I think the sort of you know, bitter scraps over 100 million here, 100 million there are less likely this year because of the vastly increased uh, borrowing will ultimately loosen the purse strings quite uh, quite significantly. Now, I know if people in the Department of Finance and people of the Department of Public Expenditure are listening to this, they'll be saying, Jesus, don't tell them that for crying out loud. But uh, I, I, Too late. Uh, and of course, of course, all the de- spending departments and the line departments will go in with bids vastly in excess, excess of what they ultimately hope to achieve. But I don't think you will have, you know, that sort of grinding tightness that uh, that that you have had in budgetary negotiations in the past. The other part, Jen, that strikes me of this sort of quite last minute or late in the day approach to the budget this year is that we're in a situation of great flux and uh, not just uncertainty, but kind of a change in the mood over the last um, four to six weeks. Um, The the government was previously, if not on a glide path and kind of laying out a narrative of gradual recovery over the next, you know, six, eight, ten months, bits of the economy, you know, getting back up and working again over the course of the summer. And now we've gone into a kind of a screeching reverse in some areas in Dublin at the moment, possibly in other parts of the country in the next couple of weeks, um, and certain um, industries and businesses which were looking forward to starting up now aren't going to be starting up. And that raises lots of questions about things like the reduction of the unemployment payment if you're saying to people, well, this is still a crisis and we're not letting you go back to work. Yeah, I think things are still very, very unpredictable um, in terms of the health situation. Obviously, that has a huge knock-on impact on the financial situation, which makes it difficult to forecast with any full degree of certainty exactly, I suppose, what will be needed um, next year, this year and into next year when you're thinking about Budget 2021. And in fact, I think Michael McGrath spoke to the Cabinet yesterday and told them that they're going to need one billion in measures that have already been committed to. They're going to need... 900 million just to meet current spending pressures and they're going to need 9 billion at least uh, in COVID spending. And that figure actually struck me as quite small when you look at the, the supplementary budgets and the extra the, the extra cash that has already been put aside for different departments in doll votes this year. So that just gives you an idea of kind of the pressures that I suppose he's under, that the government's under, different departments are under. Um, and yeah, you're right, like we're we're at a time now where there was a bit of optimism over the summer, really, wasn't there that things were getting a bit better? There was a bit of a lull. There was a lot of talk about a second wave, but now the second wave appears to be here and it's it's quite frightening. And I think that the timing for the government in terms of their decision to cut the pandemic unemployment payment 
um, has come days really after new restrictions had to be put in place in Dublin. And we are, it is expected that there will be other restrictions placed on up to eight, between six to eight other counties um, in the next week or two if the figures keep going in the wrong direction. There's a lot of concern about cases in Cork. There's a lot of concern about cases in Louth, Wicklow, Waterford, Donegal. Um, so, you know, those counties are kind of looking now to, to the figures and, and anticipating that. And obviously that has a knock on impact on business. So when you have on one hand the PUP, the pandemic unemployment payment being cut to 300 euro a week for those who earned over 300 euro per week before the pandemic, um, you know, the, the timing isn't great. And there is a lot of pressure on government now to restore the PUP to the level it was previously at. I've spoken to different industry groups yesterday and, and their message was it has to be restored. It's not a matter of when, but it has to happen. And I think this is the pressure they'll come under in the budget to basically fine-tune the schemes that they had in place for the pandemic. So you're talking about the temporary wage subsidy scheme, which has migrated into a new form, which will exist until the end of the year and then up until April next year. So currently under that scheme, a business can apply for a flat rate subsidy if there's been a reduction in turnover up to 30%. And I think they'll come under pressure to fine tune that because what will happen for businesses who have a reduction in revenue of 29% or 28%, 27%, it's kind of a cliff edge for them. So I think that in the budget, there'll be a lot of focus on graduating those schemes, um, perhaps looking at the pandemic unemployment payment again, because the political pressure in terms of that will only increase. And we saw it yesterday in Dole, we'll see it all throughout this week. And if we are facing another situation where we're moving towards level four or maybe even moving back towards a nationwide level five in the worst case scenario, um, then they, you know, they will definitely have to relook at, at those schemes again. And the level of noise around that was only enhanced by announcement of, of special advisors. I want to talk about special advisors, but actually, first, I just want to say that if you'd like to support this podcast and the journalism of the Irish Times, please go to irishtimes.com slash inside. And if you haven't done so already, you can sign up there for unlimited access. And using that particular address, irishtimes.com slash inside, allows us to know how many of our subscribers are also listeners to Inside Politics, which is good for us here on the podcast. And indeed, if you are a listener to podcasts, you'll be particularly interested in our current offer of a free pair of Sennheiser wireless headphones if you purchase a premium weekend or complete subscription. All the information is at irishtimes.com slash inside. Now, Pat, special advisors. Yes, um, nothing guaranteed to raise the hackles of media and opposition more than the appointment of special advisors. Um, you will also notice a pattern, of course, that oppositions that are outraged by the level of uh, the numbers of special advisors that are appointed when uh, uh, when they're in opposition, tend to become miraculously convinced uh, of their merits when they enter government uh, themselves. So, as Jen was reporting yesterday, uh, yesterday morning, the Cabinet approved the appointment of 10 special advisors for junior ministers. Now, every senior minister has a special advisor and uh, a press uh, advisor uh, or a press officer that they can appoint. And you know, just in case people are unfamiliar with the nature of the work that they they do, these are in addition to the civil servants that work in a minister's private office and in the rest of the department. So they work kind of specially and, and personally for that minister's agenda on policy work, on 
programme for government implementation, on cross-government work and on media work. So every cabinet member has two of those advisors. Junior ministers were initially, uh, again, as Jen reported yesterday, not supposed to have uh, their own special advisors. There was a pool of advisors that were supposed to be available to work for junior ministers, but that decision was abandoned yesterday and it was decided that 10 of the 17 normal junior ministers, excluding the three super junior ministers, I hope you're keeping up here, Hugh, uh, excluding the three super junior ministers who already have special advisors, but seven out of the, uh, 10 rather, out of the remaining 17 junior ministers would have their own advisors. They were the ones who had made uh, a compelling case for the appointment of their own advisor to the Department of Public Expenditure. Now, this leaves, uh, of course, seven junior ministers without an advisor. And the question is posed by, uh, I think was posed by Miriam Lord this morning as to whether this is because they are so able that they don't need advisors or whether they're so useless that they couldn't make a compelling case to the Department of Public Expenditure. All of this which is, is good knockabout which stuff. Is uh, I, we would have to go through that, as they say, Hugh, on a case-by-case basis. Um, but uh, Oh, Pat, I think you should. I think you should. I've got the names here if you want to go through them on a case-by-case basis. Useless or brilliant, you <laughs> Side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of them definitely useless. Some of them, some of them definitely <laughs> brilliant. The point I was going to make um, is that this is all good knockabout stuff for those of us in the kind of political and uh, and 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 media bubble. It was also given the timing of the announcement yesterday, on the day that the pandemic unemployment payment was cut. Uh, by uh, for many people by 50 euros a week um an act of gross political stupidity in uh, in 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 its timing at least and it provided uh, the Sinn Féin leader Mary Lou Macdonald with an open goal and she duly slotted the ball into the net at leaders questions and you will see the clip of Mary Lou Macdonald contrasting the government hiring, you know, more advisors for itself with the cuts to people's unemployment benefit on your Facebook feed and in your uh, in your timeline as Sinn Féin does very effectively. So, um, although to be fair, Michal Martin did have a you know not a bad riposte. He pointed out the extreme fondness of Sinn Féin in government in Northern Ireland for as many special advisors as possible. In fact, arguably, Northern Ireland is is a place that's run by special advisors. Yeah, and and, and we've spoken to Sam McBride from the the newsletter in 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 the past uh, about that. I think there's a lot of truth in that, but I refer uh, I refer my learned friend to my earlier comments about the miraculous conversion that. Uh, opposition parties tend to have uh, of the merits of special advisors when they enter government. Jen, actually, before I ask you the question, I just just point out that um, I'm sure a lot of listeners know that there are at least two former regular contributors to this podcast, two former members of the political team um, who are now um, special advisors to the current government or press advisors or one or the other. I wonder about... They're dead to us now. Dead to yeah, us. Yeah, they are. Dead. They are. Well, I'm not even going to mention their names. I, I, I do wonder, I mean, the press advisors in my day-to-day life would be the ones I would deal with more. And I'm always slightly flummoxed by the fact that there's a press advisor to a minister um, and then there's a whole press office of civil servants as well. And I do sometimes ask myself, why is this necessary? Well, I think they'd perform two different functions, to be honest with you. I think obviously the the a press office and a department, to my mind anyway, will deal with kind of 
regular queries that come in um, that would be department specific um, and probably um, agnostic to whatever minister is in or out. So it's kind of the civil service element of it. Whereas, to my mind, a ministerial advisor to a specific person um, works with them on a much closer basis. They would deal a lot with political correspondence and those working um, in Leinster House to field kind of very specific questions, often quite late at night or very early in the morning, which you wouldn't get from a press office um, who work kind of more regular hours. And the questions could be more sensitive. They could be more time sensitive. Um, and I do think that the role that's performed by both is is quite different. Now, critics would say, I, I know critics would say that those who carry out the role of media advisor to the government perhaps are, to their mind, maybe performing a role that could be seen to be to the betterment of, of the minister. But really, it's to communicate. Spin, Jen, spin. spin. Let's Sorry, be frank I was, here. I was looking for the word, you know. This is two weeks off and I forget. <laughs> no, but the argument is it's not a public service. It's a political service to the, to the yeah. politician. Well, that's yeah. the argument, yeah. But I think that the, the role that they provide is uh, a little bit broader than that and certainly is a lot more unsociable uh, and it's to take calls from people like myself and Pat um, at ungodly hours about probably very specific things that need an answer immediately and that need to be clarified immediately, especially during a pandemic where the whole way that we work has changed and the news cycle has changed. And when information gets out that is incorrect, it's damaging to the government. It's really not helpful for us and it's not great for our readers or listeners. So... I think they do a role that's a little bit more specific and that's uh, a little bit more unsociable, to be honest with you. I mean, Pat is right, though, isn't he? When he says it's it's yet another blunder to add to the long list of blunders of this government, the way the timing and everything else was handled yesterday. Yeah, I think so. And and what I've been told, and I'm always open to correction, is that there was a meeting of comms heads um, of the government yesterday. Usually you'd have like advisors meetings and all that and, and they'd discuss... Um, communications and that there was one such meeting yesterday and that it wasn't raised the potential for this to look bad, which I found extraordinary um, because it just seems such an obvious thing, doesn't it? You're appointing 10 advisors a day after or on the day of the, the PUP has been cut. And, you know, we know from the figures that came out uh, in relation to the pandemic unemployment payment that the demand is still there. I think the figures on the PUP only dropped by around 3,000 week on week. And that was before you take into account the new restrictions that are put in place in Dublin. So it's not like this, that this payment isn't being used. It's not like this payment isn't needed. Um, and I think that the optics of that, to me, if <laughs> speaking of advisors, like if I was an advisor, you'd kind of look at that and say, that's a bad idea. Can we do that some Suggests other time? Suggests to me that some of the special advisors may not be so special after all. <laughs> Apart from our former colleagues, I'm sure they're very special. <laughs> I mean, that there, there is, I think Jen put, points out, it's a, it is a complete irony there, isn't it? That all these people are employed to smooth the path of the government, to make sure it doesn't put a foot wrong, to be strategically nimble and to get the message out with greater clarity. And this is what we get as a result. It's crazy. It, it, it just seemed, it, it seems like another um, own goal and you, you could have absolutely put that off another week. Like just because cabinet doesn't approve advisors doesn't mean they can't do their job. You know, often there's a, a, a really long time lag between an advisor being appointed and being paid and getting into their role and actually being approved by cabinet. Like it, So to me, it just seemed completely bizarre and really odd timing. Uh, and you'd, you'd wonder, but like this is what we've become accustomed to, really, to be honest with you. Like we've become accustomed to kind of these bizarre things where you think, did nobody see this coming? Pat, I just want to 
turn to as well a, an interesting political development this week, a new sort of a coalition uh, in local government uh, in Dublin between Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and Sinn Féin, uh, supported by the uh, People Before Profit and Solidarity, uh, quite an interesting rainbow, a new form of rainbow coalition, um, who all decided collectively to uh, not to increase uh, local property tax, which has been stuck at quite a very low level based on out-of-date valuations of houses in Dublin for for several years now. Now, Dublin's in serious financial trouble as a result of the pandemic. Uh, its revenues are way down on a number of different fronts and the calls on its services are increased. But this was of little concern, it seems, or not sufficient concern to the councillors of all those respective parties. I note that the Irish Times um, today it, in an editorial uh, is, is most displeased by this. Uh, yes. So the way the local property tax works is there's a base rate set and local councils can decide to reduce that by 15% or to increase it by 15%. So every year the Dublin City Council has voted to reduce it by 15%. The executive, the uh, the officers, the, the non-elected executive leadership of the council led by Owen Keegan, city manager, wanted to increase it, increase it from the base rate by 15%. Uh, the councillors voted uh, along the lines, along the party lines you suggested earlier to keep the maximum 15% reduction. So there will be a, uh, so there will be a, a, a significant shortfall in the budget. So the the uh, city council will either have to um, reduce its expenditure or increase its revenues from other, uh, from other sources and their first port of call would of course be central government to look for uh, to look for additional resources in all likelihood what will happen is um uh, is a combination of both some services will be cut and some um uh, some services will be cut and some additional revenues will be uh, will be given from central government which is already guaranteed to pay the uh, pay law, the the contribution of lost business rates uh, to central government. I think, which is a commitment is costing about five hundred million in the first couple of months that it was um, uh, that that uh, that it was in operation. So um, I suppose more interesting is the you know the ideological coalition. Uh, are they the curious ideological coalition which uh, crosses party lines and goes to show that um, parties of the far left are just as um, are just as opposed to tax increases as uh, uh, as parties of the centre and uh, and centre right. Um, I remember discovering uh, discovering this or having this reinforced several years ago when I rang the People Before Profit TD Richard Boyd Barrett um, to see if he wished to be quoted in condemnation of the government's uh, the then government's budgetary decision to cut capital uh, capital gains tax and uh, our capital acquisitions task uh, tax and uh, he was strangely reluctant to do so and uh, pointing out of course that many uh, owners of uh, of 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 ordinary homes 
in his uh, in his constituency of Dunleary would be over the threshold for capital uh, for capital gains tax. Lucky them, you might think, and uh, and 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 therefore shouldn't they be prepared to uh, pay some of this uh, this windfall into uh, public coffers to pay for the social services that uh, Deputy Boyd Barrett and many of his uh, colleagues would constantly advocate for? But uh, but I'm afraid not. Um, and I think uh, I I mean I'm not sure about this, but I think they must be the only radical socialist party um, to uh, uh, to be against taxes on uh, well on, on, on wealthy property. But uh, there you are. Welcome to Irish politics. Yeah, well, 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 that's it exactly. We should say that the Social Democrats, the Labour Party and the Greens, while they didn't necessarily agree with Owen Keegan's proposal of a 15% increase, went some of the way on it. So they weren't in favour of this full 15% reduction. Jen, I was trying to explain this to a, a foreign observer of Irish politics a few weeks ago, and I found it very difficult to explain this particularly Irish form of low-tax left-wing politics. It's something I seem to recall that we saw in some of the research into the votes in the run-up to and after the the recent general election, that I I recall a number that Sinn Féin voters, for example, were very, very against um, uh, tax in general and wanted to see tax cuts, which is not normally what you'd associate with the largest left-wing party in the country, self-described. No, it, it isn't, is it? And, and I can understand your um, frustration at having to explain these sort of anomalies to your to your um, international friend. But, um, you know, it's Irish politics hasn't always aligned traditionally the way I suppose you would expect or traditionally the way politics has aligned in other European countries. Um, and, you know, it's, it's for a number of different reasons. But I think that, and this could be me being cynical, a lot of it is kind of not populist, but it is playing to the base of the, the party. And, you know, there'll be a lot of research done as to what, what are the vote winners and what will work with the party base. And I think that's just what we're seeing played out. And the issue with property tax has been a hot potato for such a long time. And it's been put off and put off and put off and frozen. And I thought this would be the year that they would have to address it. When we actually spoke about this this time last year on the podcast, I remember saying to you that next year they're going to have to deal with this and it's not going to be pretty. And now we see this happening again. So it's, you know, it's one of those issues that just keeps getting kicked. The can just keeps getting kicked down the road. And I, you know, it, it will have to be dealt with eventually because we've had multiple reports into a thorny report and whatnot. That's what um, we said last year. Yes. <laughs> and we'll the say year it again before. next year. God, that's Irish politics for you. Finally, Pat, I mean, the thing strikes me, what I ended, how I ended up explaining this um, was to say, well, don't pay any attention to the parties. Pay attention to the voters. They're to blame. They're all on the same side on this. They, uh, they're they not prepared to have higher taxes for better services. And they're not particularly taken by wealth taxes of any sort and particularly on their most beloved form of wealth and the main form of wealth and assets in this country, property. Yes, we've been here before though, Hugh. Um, in defence of the voters, which is in fairness, a, a position I rarely find myself occupying. I, I'm not sure it is true to say that they are they are opposed to higher taxes for better services. In fact, polls tend to show that if they believed they were going to get better services for the higher tax uh, for higher taxation, then many of them might would be prepared uh, to uh, to contemplate that. But they're not convinced that they will get better services for higher taxes. And so they make the, and, and if, if that is their view, then it, it is, of course, perfectly rational to oppose higher taxes. Um, you know, the bigger picture is that services have to be paid for. 
um, that's not a a political or ideological view. It is a fact of uh, of, of it, it's a fact of economic life. It's a fact of arithmetic, really. Uh, what politics is often about, uh, in its essence, is deciding who should pay for that and in what proportions and uh, deciding not just how big the pie is, but how the, the contribute, how, how the slices of that pie should be, um, uh, should be dispersed, but also how people should contribute to the ingredients that make that pie, if that's not to stretch the metaphor uh, beyond, uh, beyond breaking point or crumbling point, I suppose. Um, so, uh, you know, this is a version of the most basic of political debates. But as is often the case in Irish politics, uh, it doesn't actually want to engage in that debate. It wants to have a phony debate that pretends that you can have infinite services paid for by somebody else. So uh, in, in, in that respect, I suppose despite our editorial and our coverage today, there's nothing remotely surprising about what ha happened at Dublin City Council the other night. Yeah, I'm going to stick to my explanation, which is the Irish people are a bunch of lying hypocrites. On, on that happy note, uh, I'm going to leave it there. That's it for today's podcast. Thanks to Pat. Thanks to Jen for joining us. Thanks also to our producer, Suzanne Brennan, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. If you want to get in touch with us, we're always really happy to hear from you. Just email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.